Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your life-giving word. Open our hearts and our ears and our minds and our souls. We ask for a powerful work of your spirit today, that we might see you in all your glory and be filled with your peace and your grace and your kindness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Uh, God's word says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, God says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made because God formed you and God shaped you and God perfectly designed you. Uh, Whether you are male or female, a boy or a girl, you are loved by God, adored by God, cherished by God, a good, kind, powerful God. I want to start with that truth today. Because today's topic is difficult and complex. We're looking at gender. We're looking at gender. It's such a hot topic, I feel like I am walking through landmines because no matter what I say or how carefully I say it, I fear I will offend some people. So is gender something a person is? Or is gender something a person feels, learns, and becomes, and behaves? Is gender fixed and formed, or is gender fluid and flexible? Uh, This week, there was outcry over the census we all filled in because we weren't asked about gender. We were asked whether we were male or female, but apparently we weren't asked about gender because, to quote, gender is all about social and cultural differences in identity, expression, and experience as a man, woman, or non-binary person. So today, that word gender, it's about your identity, how you identify yourselves. That word gender is about your expression, how you behave, how you present yourself through social interactions. So today, gender is about identity and expression, and less about your anatomy. Uh, To quote, anatomy isn't your destiny. So your anatomy no longer determines your gender. It's more about how you feel or who you want to be. And so Bruce Jenner can become Caitlin. That's the world that we now live in. And questions like, what does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be a woman? Is gender binary? Is there masculinity and femininity? Did God intend men and women to be different. Even to ask those questions is controversial. No other topic is being elevated and redefined more than gender, so the conversations around the transgender issue is very loud. But can I say, church, we must speak with with such sensitivity and, and bucket loads of compassion and kindness and grace. Because too often, Christians have been unloving and intolerant and uneducated on such issues, and the damage is massive. Please don't wade in with a truckload of Bible verses and zero compassion. But there's been a massive shift, a shift from from body to brain. Because whilst the Bible says that as human beings we are complex, we are body, mind, and spirit, our world now seems to say that the brain trumps the body. And psychology is more important than physiology. As one person says, 
Gender is now between your ears, not between your legs. I have freedom of choice, freedom to be who I want to be, who I think I am, freedom just to be me. The individual is what matters. So it seems like now desire trumps divine revelation. That's why gender is controversial. And it's complex. Uh, Today, I don't just want to talk about gender identity issues. I want to talk about the way that certain genders, women in particular, have been treated and marginalized and oppressed throughout the ages. So did you know that one in three Australian women have suffered physical violence at the hands of men? One in five women have experienced sexual abuse. Every week in Australia, one woman is murdered by her partner. And across the world, 68 million girls are in child slave labor. We still experience female infanticide and gender-selective abortion that is profoundly wrong, and women are still not treated with equal value and equal worth. And I'm not just talking about in the church, but in the workplace, where they get unequal pay for comparable skills. And there's demeaning jokes and objectification of women. So I want to start with an apology. I'm sorry for the way the Christians have caused hurt and harm. And I'm sorry for the way that we have taught the Bible so badly that it's experienced abuse for women. And I'm sorry for the way that the church has led to the demeaning of women. And I'm sorry for the way that we've lacked compassion for those people who are grappling with gender identity issues. And I'm sorry for the way that we've had so much truth, but we've lacked love. And I'm sorry for the way that women, perhaps at this church, have felt not valued or, or second rate. And I'm sorry for the way that we perhaps overemphasize gender distinctive roles, what we can and can't do, but we failed to celebrate the goodness and the beauty of both men and women. But most importantly, I am sorry because we're not talking about issues. We're talking about individuals, precious individuals, loved and created by God. People who are experiencing real pain and grappling with the way that God has made them. And and sadly, uh, they are not able to speak out or reach out in this place that we call the church that's supposed to be a place of love. And one more apology, I I want to recognize right up front, I'm a man speaking on this topic this morning. When I use the word gender, I will use that word gender to mean anatomy, identity, and expression, because that's how the Bible uses all three. Let's start with design, design. Uh, John Wyatt, in his excellent book, Matters of Life and Death, has a great analogy. He says, We as human beings are not human Lego kits, a collection of different pieces that you can construct and change how you would like, where the only limit is your imagination. It's not like Lego masters where you create your own identity. No, we're more like a beautiful masterpiece that we need an art restorer. So an art restorer doesn't put a moustache on the Mona Lisa or put a car into a constable painting. The art restorer's job is to bring out the artist's original intention to help us to see the glory of that masterpiece. And that's where I want to start today, with God's good creation, God's magnificent design. Back in Genesis 1 at creation, where God brings order 
to chaos and he forms and he fills and his masterpiece is us human beings. Genesis 1 verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That is God's design. We're created by God in the image of God for the glory of God. And it was good. So Genesis 1 does not start with gender differences, but equality. Men and women are not opposing beings. We are human beings. And I hope you know that God himself is described in anthropomorphic language with both male and female images. He's described as like a mother protecting her young under her wings. So both men and women are image bearers of God. That's your glory. That's your honor. That's your worth. Do you remember what it means to be born in the image of God? Remember the four R's? We are rational beings with a mind and with morality And neither gender is is more rational, more intelligent, or more moral. There's equality. We are representative beings uh, put here on earth to represent God in his world. And those attributes of love, grace, compassion, mercy, they are not gender specific. There's equality. We are relational beings. And just as God coexists in this rich relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit... We as human beings are created to relate to God and to others. And despite what our world says, neither gender is created as being more relational than the other. There's equality. And we are responsible beings. Uh, the, The command in Genesis 1 verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That's your mandate to be stewards on this earth. And both men and women are designed to co-rule, co-steward, and co-work in this world. In fact, Genesis 2 tells us the man isn't able to steward the world without the woman. They need each other. Just as we need both genders to, to fill the earth. God is not constrained by biology. He could have created asexual reproduction, but he made us as sexual beings and we need both men and female. So both men and women are formed by the same God, crowned with the same glory, with the same value, same significance and same worth. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that men are more in the image of God than women. And that's why Christians must always speak out against the horror of sinful male dominance. We must always oppose cultures that continue to subjugate women. There's no gender superiority, no inferiority. It's equality. Equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in importance, equal in worth, and equal in redemption. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, please hear that. There is no spiritual hierarchy based on your race, your rank, or your gender. Both men and women are heirs of redemption, heirs of grace, filled with the same Holy Spirit. And there's no gender language when it comes to the spiritual gifts. Prophecy, prayer, healing tongues, admin, hospitality, it's not about your gender, it's about your giftings. So there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. This is God's good design. 
And again, can I say, if you as a woman have ever felt undervalued at church, I'm sorry. And if you as a man have ever felt devalued, again, I'm sorry. Male and female is God's good design. Does God favor men over women? No. But does God blend the two genders? No. Galatians 3 is not a Bible Trump verse. Paul is talking about your salvation there. He's not wiping out all distinctions. There's still Jews and Gentiles. There's still slaves and free. And there's still male and female. There are some differences. God designed us to complement each other. Differentiation, gender equality does not mean we are interchangeable or identical. Remember that book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus? I don't think that would be a bestseller today because all these gender differences are slowly being erased. So let's turn to Genesis 2. If Genesis 1 is like Google Earth and Genesis 2 is like Google Street View, we kind of zoom in on the garden and God creates this man, Adam. 2 verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. 2 verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So that's the mandate, to steward and to serve, to provide and to protect. Then in 2.20, the man has authority to name the animals. But back in 2.18, God says something is not good. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. So the man needs someone else to provide and protect, to steward and serve alongside him. Someone who's different from the animals, someone else in the image of God. 2 verse 18, I will make a helper suitable for him. That word helper is key. Uh, Please don't think inferior, it's not. Please don't think trodden on, it's not. Uh, Do you know who's called the helper most in the scriptures? It's God himself. Exodus 18, Psalm 20, Psalm 54, verse 4, God is my helper. Because that term helper is a term of honor and dignity and wisdom and strength. A helper suitable for him, someone who suits the man perfectly, someone of the same species but is different, someone who is like him, a side-by-side companion to do life together. Now we're told in verse 20, that no suitable helper was found from the animals. And so verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. You ever thought why, the, why God didn't create the woman from the dust? I think he wanted us to be so united, so connected, so together. He didn't create the woman from the head of a man so the woman could rule over the man, or from the feet of the man so the man could trample on women. He created the woman from her side, equal, face to face, together, heart to heart. And the man sees her and he bursts into song, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Now friends, that. There is order in this creation. You can't deny that. Adam was formed first and then Eve. A man did name his wife and Adam was held responsible for the fall. 
That order is referred to throughout the scriptures. But order doesn't mean hierarchy. And these differences we're about to look at don't mean better or worse, superior or inferior. It's just different. So we are complex beings, body, mind and spirit. And research shows that our brains are slightly different. In general, the female brain is a bit like an interconnected fiber optic wires where you touch one wires and they're all engaged. But the male brain is more like separate files for different things, a file for work and for hobbies and for, for family, just one file at a time. And then a nothing file we call channel surfing. Physiologically, we are different. Our skeletal structures are different. Men in general have more muscle mass and women in general have larger internal organs like kidneys and livers and stomachs. Women live longer, are healthier and are far less likely to commit violent crimes. Hormonally, we are different, different levels of testosterone and estrogen. Chromosomally, we are different, XY or XX. Anatomically, we are different, a penis or a vagina. And sure, there's a very rare condition called intersex with XXY chromosomes and ambiguous genitalia, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but it's not a third gender. Our communication patterns are different. In general, women speak about 25,000 words per day and men about 12,500. And women in a conversation keep eye contacts about 12 seconds and men about 3 seconds. So we are different. But listen very carefully. The Bible does not have lots of rigid rules about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. I think that's an evangelical error. It's different cultures that have developed these social codes and these masculine and feminine labels. So it's men going on boot camps and learning how to grill a steak and fix a car and start a fire. That's not scriptural, that's societal. And it creates all kinds of issues. Now, what happens when you don't fit those stereotypes? Why are boys who prefer dance and drama to the gym and footy still called soft? Why are girls who love soccer, not crafts, still called tomboys? That's not scriptural, that is societal. So please don't push the Bible beyond where it goes. Now, Jacob was a, a magnificent cook and, and Jaya was pretty nifty with that tempeg. So be very wary of overly rigid gender stereotypes. It can be so damaging to people. Now, speaking personally, uh, growing up, I hated rugby, and you might not be surprised to know I didn't like the gym. I wasn't built, I wasn't blokey, I was emotional. And the names and the labels that I was called, even by Christians, was terribly damaging. I've been listening recently to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And that blokey, macho, so-called biblical masculinity, you know, rise up and be a man, it is caused devastating damage. One man will be different to another man, and one woman will be different to another woman, and that is good and beautiful. So what are these biblical gender differences? And this is what's really struck me this week. This is what the Spirit has been teaching me. The Bible talks way less about what we do as men and women and way more about how we do it. It's not about our roles. It's about our our character. 
who we are as men and women. So I love the story of King David on his deathbed. It's there in 1 Kings chapter 2. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong and act like a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands. Act like a man. But it's not about his physical strength or his power. It's not about being a warrior. It's about being a worshipper. Obeying God, loving God, depending on God. That's what it means to be a man. It's about your character. Titus 2 verse 1. Teach the older man to be temperate. Worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Because there's something about the way that we are designed as men that means we tend to lack self-control and be more prone to anger. The same as elders in the church. I'm not denying male eldership. I do think the Bible teaches biblical male eldership. I'm not going to go into teaching roles this morning, today, that's such a, a great area. I'm very happy to do that in the Q&A on Wednesday night this week. But when it comes to elders, it's more about your character than your role. Titus 1, be faithful to your wife. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Be hospitable, love what is good, be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It's about your character as a man. Same in marriage, if you are married, a contentious passage, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands. Now Paul does not say, husbands, your needs come first. He does not say that women are less gifted in leadership and he does not say that women should not work outside the home or women should earn less than their husbands. Now read the Bible, Paul says actually the needs of the wife come first and husbands be like Jesus be selfless and sacrificial. Do not be dominant, but be abounding in love. Now, that would have been incredibly countercultural. Now, if you are a married man, your wife should be saying things like, My husband just loves me too much. That's what it means to be a man. And I could go on. When it comes to men, the Bible talks about lifting up your hands in prayer. Being humble and being gentle and being sacrificial and protecting and nurturing and loving. Why? Because perhaps these are the things that we as men need to work on more than women. Our sinful nature as men means that we are more prone to violence, more prone to pride, selfishness, lying and lust. Same with the women. I love Proverbs 31, and I know that many women groan on that chapter. It's a beautiful chapter about a highly competent, hugely successful, multifaceted, godly woman who cares for the poor, speaks wisdom, and teaches kindness. But this is a key verse, verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Not fearing people, not fearing man, not trying to impress other women with the way they look or the way they dress, but living in this awe and this reverence and this fear of God. Same as 1 Peter 3, your inner beauty, not outward adornments, where you love and fear God. Now women need to believe that and men need to value that. And just a word of clarity here. These relational distinctions, you know, male and female in the home or elders and deacons in the church, please don't go applying those to all areas of life. There is nothing stopping a woman from being a CEO of a company, 
And the Bible never says that women cannot be, can also be providers and protectors. They can. What am I saying? I'm saying the focus is less on gender roles and more on our godliness. Less on competency and more on character. So rather than damaging discussions on gender distinctiveness, let's just celebrate who we are as men and women. Let's turn to Genesis 3 for my third point today. I've called it disorder. I could have said distrust, distortion, deceit or domination. It's all the impact of the fall. It's all the consequence of sin. And sadly, because of sin, men and women no longer relate as we were designed to relate. There's this brokenness in our experience of gender. There's a shift from from beauty to brokenness. From innocence and intimacy to shame and blame. And Genesis 3.16 is such an important verse for gender. And I'm not talking about the painful labor bit that we all wish wasn't there. It's that next phrase, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the curse that God places on his creation. Now that word desire there, it's not talking about affections, it's not sexual desires. The word is used in Genesis 4, 4 verse 7 with Cain and Abel. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you and you must rule over it. So that desire is a longing to master and to control and to possess. It's this picture of a power struggle where a woman wants to take control and the man, verse 16, he wants to rule over her. Same word as chapter 1, he wants to dominate or to have dominion. That was not God's design. This tug of war between the genders, it wasn't God's good design. So the impact of sin is massive. The sin explains, it doesn't excuse, but it explains the overly controlling patriarchal cultures that have dominated our historical landscape for far too long. I'm not talking past, I'm talking present. Today, too many women are still, still oppressed, suppressed, and silenced. Sin explains the appalling treatment, even in the Bible, of murder, rape, and exploitation. Sin explains this battle where one gender is always trying to prove themselves. And sin explains the disorder we have in our minds. It explains that long concept that to be a real man, you need to be fiercely independent and strong and never show emotions or weakness. That is a lie. And it explains the pressure that women feel to look or dress a certain way or that men fill their mind with pornography and violence. It is horrific. It's a fallen world that we live in. It's not perfect. Let me touch very briefly on the transgender issue or gender dysphoria. Uh, Gender dysphoria, to quote, is a condition where a person experiences discomfort or distress because there's a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. Let me be very clear. I'm not talking about intersex people. with the chromosomal distortions where you have that difficult decision as to which gender to assign at birth. Transgender people do have a clearly defined biological anatomical gender, but they desire to live in a different way. They feel like they're in a wrong body. It's not about surgery, it's about how they feel. Now the cause is still unknown. It, It could be nature, it could be nurture. 
But the stats are horrific. 34% attempt suicide. 64% are bullied. 73% are harassed in public. And 21% avoid going out for fear. This is intense isolation that is desperately sad. There's a whole spectrum of responses. Some struggle inwardly with no outward change to their gender expression. Some engage in cross-dressing in private or in public. Some seek medical help, psychological help, hormonal treatment, surgical procedures. But this is where there's been this massive pendulum shift. If 50 years ago it was all about therapy to sort out your mind with these horrific and damaging consequences. Uh, today, the pendulum shifted so far, it's now just sort out your body. If you feel this way, go straight to sort out your body. Perhaps way too early and way too young. But the question is this, how should we Christians respond to transgenders? I think Vaughan Roberts is really helpful in his book on transgender he says this, that, that whilst the world says yes to everything, be who you want to be, Christians still say yuck to everything. Yuck. And that is so insensitive. Because these men and women are, are beautiful, precious creatures made in the image of God. And so church, we must respond with kindness, compassion, grace and gentleness. And I think we need to learn from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus upheld the, the divine dignity of design of male and female without bowing down to contemporary pressure. But he also made space in his thinking for people who didn't fit neatly into some mold. So Jesus welcomed everybody because everybody is broken. And I love the fact the very first Gentile convert in the Bible, the very first non-Jewish believer, is what? Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian eunuch. Someone that today we'd call genderqueer. Because everybody needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs to hear the voice of Jesus say, come to me, come as you are, and you'll find rest. And Christ doesn't leave us as we are, but he welcomes us to come as we are. So we don't water down biblical truth, but we're marked with bucketfuls of love and compassion. And that's the type of church I want us to be. If you're walking alongside somebody who is struggling with gender identity issues, can I urge you to love them, affirm your love for them, affirm God's love for them, listen to them, ask questions, understand why they're feeling this, how long they've been feeling this, hear their stories, and respect them. Respect them. Yes, it means calling them by the name that they want to be called, why would we offend them unnecessarily? And then invite them to meet Jesus. Experience his love, his joy, his peace, and let Jesus and the Holy Spirit transform them. That's his job, not your job. And if this is a personal struggle for you, can I please, please, please urge you not to battle alone? You were never meant to walk alone. And I hope and pray that this church is a safe place where you can reach out and experience love. I've got to finish, but I've got to talk about Jesus, and I'll finish with this. It's delight. The Lord Jesus Christ was the perfect man, born as a boy, raised as a man, lived as a man, 
but he had the perfect character. He wasn't a macho strength. He wasn't masculine in terms of his domination, but it was humility, kindness, and grace. He was tough in confronting hypocrisy. He was tender in his love. And I hope you know that the Lord Jesus did more to elevate the status of women and the marginalized and the broken than anybody else in history. Because Jesus stepped into a culture where women were devalued and exploited and Jesus gave them value and dignity and worth and a personal relationship with him. He had compassion on the woman who was bleeding. He embraced that so-called sinful woman who washed his feet with her tears. He affirmed and spoke to that shame-ridden Samaritan woman. And sure, Jesus had 12 male disciples, but there were females as well. Mary, Joanna, Susanna, Mary and Martha, he welcomed them all. And it was Christianity, you know, that protected women from these horrific prepubescent arranged marriages. It was Christianity that gave rights for widows and, and spoke against polygamy. It was Christianity that championed the right for women's votes and the right for women to inherit land. It was Christian women who were the first doctors, the first lawyers, Christian women who took the gospel to the ends of the earth as missionaries because all these women of courage who knew their identity and their value as in Christ. So when you come to Christ, he, he gives you a, a new mind and, and a new heart and he fills you with his spirit. He renews you day by day and he says you are not defined by society, you're defined by me. Your feelings don't define you. Christ defines you. And God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now sure, we're still battle. And we're looking and we're longing. We've been washed by Christ, but we're waiting for that new creation, that new heavens and new earth, where there's no confusion and no controversy and no complexity. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come.